Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 3rd, 2022, although we are recording this Sunday night, October 2nd, 2022. So if uh, if there are developments uh, overnight that um, crowd in or change some of the emphases of the things that we're about to talk about, you will have to forgive us and excuse us, as it is yet again, commentary after dark. Here we are. I Did I introduce myself yet? I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. I don't drink very much, and I don't have a drink, and I don't know whether my colleagues have a drink or not. The classic After Dark appellation suggests some alcohol. Noah seems to have a glass of wine. Christine, I have a glass of red wine and a very campy Christine has a glass of glass. Amazingly, oh, a glass of Pinot right here. Yes. Yeah, Christine has a glass of Pinot. I, if I, 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 um, I Abe, was about to. That's water. Abe, I was about to call you Isaac. It's my son's <laughs> name. It's bizarre because he has a kind of. And you're not the drunk. He one. has like a classroom. <laughs> he has like a, a a plastic cup of water, and the cup is like one of those cups from a diner. I'm gonna go like all New Testament and turn it into wine for you. Okay, it'll oh, be that's, fun. That's exciting. Anyway, I have a I have a diet peach snapple, which is my uh, which is my. Uh, what do you call it? Ferment, an unfermented beverage of choice. So, I I will I will expect my colleagues to bring the levity that I myself uh, uh, cannot cannot bring. And those colleagues are, of course, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and AEI fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um. So uh, it's fall, it's October, the leaves are changing. Uh, we're going to get some economic news probably at the end of the week about, uh, we are going to get about the unemployment rate and the jobs growth and the da-da-da. And uh, uh, we're, a little, we're a little at sixes and sevens about what to talk about because on the one hand, there's so much news. And on the other hand, Everything is just sort of bubbling along. Things are bubbling. So we have the bubbling uh, story of the uh, where the Ukrainians are in relation to the Russians and this astounding um, victory, uh, Ukrainian victory uh, over over the Russians that had the Russians um, essentially abandoning uh, a city uh, in Ukraine that they had held. We have... Uh, we have protests in Iran that are accelerating uh, across the country, and as Noah notes, uh, now um, uh, increasingly uh, preoccupying uh, Tehran, the capital, even as there are all kinds of signs and portents that the head mullah, the Ayatollah Khamenei, may be on his last legs. And we have developments in the school loan debt forgiveness debt transfer story uh, in which the administration uh, has completely altered its proposal for debt transfer in order to invalidate the standing of the person who has sued them uh, with the Pacific Legal Foundation as his lawyer um, to remove him and people like him 
from the people who can get relief through this debt transfer, um, meaning that this proposal, uh, this world historical proposal, they are now they are now just amending on the fly uh, this all incepted by the executive branch. They're just amending it on the fly to make it to make it something that can't be that that is uh, harder to challenge. And now millions of people have actually been removed from the debt transfer program, um, which really does suggest the uh, brazen illegality of the entire thing. That they're just, you know, it, this is not a piece of legislation. So somebody files the lawsuit that clearly is almost like an open and shut case that is going to get the the policy thrown out and they so they just they just amend the policy the same way they announce the policy kind of jaw dropping so there's that too i don't know so that's that's some of the many things that we could talk about uh abe what do you want to talk about hmm well the only thing i'll say about about what, what you did just bring up about about um student debt transfer is that there are going to be more lawsuits? So are they going to amend every time? I mean, are they just, are they just going to like be boxed in, into a corner? The administration. There'll be one guy is? left who's got standing right. to sue. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so they had to find somebody who could claim a harm, right? That's that's how you have standing to sue. So they had a guy who claimed a harm as somebody who had been paying back his loans or I, I mean, I, 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 I don't even understand what it is, but they found a guy, he was being harmed. And then they're like, magically, guess what? You're not being harmed anymore because we changed the policy. So you can claim that there is any harm coming to you. So someone is going to have to find somebody who was harmed. And apparently we can't do that. I don't know why we as taxpayers cannot sue on the grounds that a $400 billion payout by the federal government but that did not go through a legislative process does it does not prevent does not present a harm to any and in, in every individual taxpayer but apparently it can't or no one has yet figured out how it can because that suit could have been brought you know five seconds after the policy was announced so i don't know how they find they find a harm. i i wouldn't be surprised by the i mean i, I don't know on what grounds yet but if someone among the millions who are now out of luck sues for having been, you know, cut out of this on the fly after being told that, that, that they were that they were that they were going to get some debt forgiveness. Right. They made future commitments based right. on their student loan relief. And now they have to renege on those commitments and Biden's to blame. But I, the, the, the political implications of this, though, I think are important because remember, this was all a sort of effort to get you know, to, to give do a big giveaway before the midterm elections. And now he's slow in his own role, which is interesting. So that's actually not a great message because the the young progressives, they, you know, they want to get these young women, especially these sort of college age and just early professionally aged young women to the polls. Um, we've we've seen a slowdown on the Dobbs issue, although that I think still will be a major presence in the midterm elections. This was another thing to say, look, this this gives you a reason to be positive about Joe Biden and the Democrats. Even though Joe Biden's not on the ballot, it's this is what Democrats do for groups like you is they give you money, they give you this this debt forgiveness. That's a little undercut by this recent action. You know, this gets to a slightly larger, a vastly larger point that I hadn't even really thought to bring up, but I think is is, is suitable for a 
discursive evening like like tonight's evening which is uh we keep reading about how um polarization is hardening there are fewer and fewer uh unaligned voters uh even if there are you know people nominally people are there are more independents than there are members of either party but that people essentially line up pretty systematically uh on one side or another there are very few split ticketing there are very you know something interesting may be going on in pennsylvania and even in georgia but particularly in pennsylvania where you really could have a split ticket situation in which you have people voting one way in the governor's race and another way in the senate race but there's less and less of that that used to be happen all the time and there's less and less of that and i just wonder issue by issue we focus on issues that's what we're interested in and that's what i think the people who listen to this podcast are interested in but if people are calcifying this way hardening in this way uh, into camps um does any of this matter do policy changes policy assertions matter uh in the sense that do they they don't we don't really expect them to change people's minds right that in a large measure it's not like there's some a rock ribbed republican who's going to look at the dobbs decision and then say i'm sorry i have to vote democratic now unlikely right but actually i will say i i i'm not sure that's the case among younger republican leaning women I, mean, I said you said leaning you said leaning, leaning. Yes, i said yes. like rock ribbed rock ribbed okay maybe not okay. rock ribbed but okay yeah so i think that's very plausible uh younger leaning voters tend not to be voters in midterm elections uh so that's a that's that's an element i mean they are now clearly voters in presidential elections where turnout has been astronomical for the last three cycles or four cycles but um i i am i'll posit a theory around what you're what you're saying and it's perhaps very naive i'm hopefully it's just a little naive but the policy that voters remember good policy is good politics is the phrase and the phrase is kind of reductive and not really doesn't really manifest in the real world but uh good policy is good politics if you talk about it a lot like if that's your shining your the example of how you've delivered for your constituencies and democrats don't do a lot of talking about the policies that they've enacted which is you know you don't hear a lot about gun control you don't hear a lot about the the biggest climate change bill in in history as much as you know it comes up as sort of a an aside but it is not what they dwell on what they dwell on are what they want to energize their base against in policy terms it's the abortion decision it's as you say republicans will bring a suit and perhaps most likely get an injunction before you see a, you know any debt relief whatsoever but they're arguing against the courts they're not arguing against anybody on the ballot and to the extent they're making an argument against anybody on the ballot it's the presidential election in 24 and who gets to appoint judges to the federal judiciary it's it's a convoluted argument compared to the more simplistic argument which is you wanted this we passed this we got this okay but abe what Noah is saying is good policy makes good politics, but maybe it doesn't. In other words, maybe the negative polarization is what makes politics. So we've got very firm lines drawn on the negative front for Democrats in a way that in a very plain way, right? We have 
climate change, we have guns, and now and we have abortion now. Um, gods, <laughs> pagan gods, guns, and abortion. And then on the Republican side, we have very systematic social issues, right? Uh, uh, CRT in schools, uh, Black Lives Matter, crime policies, transgenderism taking over, all of that. And so uh, these draw the battle lines. And so the kinds of things that we talk about, like, how is Ukraine going to affect the election? Is it good to be hawkish or is it better to be cautious? Like, is it good for Biden electorally that he is, uh, that, you know, that he's been uh, stalwart and supportive of the Ukrainians or does anybody really care? Um, this is one of the issues that don't, that aren't neatly dividing, right? But can, can I add to yeah. that, that, that this idea that, okay, we have this, this polarization on both sides, which is true. Um, the idea that it's just equally uh, two equal sides battling each other in red states versus blue, that's shifting too. Look at what California just did. Gavin Newsom just proposed a, a piece of legislation or you know, proposed a uh, California law that would allow children from other states to cross the California state line, come into California, and without their parents' permission, undergo gender transition uh, surgeries, uh, puberty blocking drugs, all the things that without their parents' permission and would deny parents access to medical information regarding their children. That's that's kind of a front, a new front in the culture war. That's a state saying your kids, if someone brings them in, so say you have parents in a custody battle and one parent wants the kid to transition, the other one's opposed to it. All you have to do is drive to California and you're the winning parent if you want your kid to be trans. Say you have a kid who sort of runs away and wants to do this, who's underage. Then once the state of California has them, they can do what they want. The, I mean, this is a state that requires parental approval to get a piercing. So the idea that this is the, the, there's a far more aggressive culture war going on underneath a lot of these broader themes that I think people are paying attention to that. Voters are paying attention to that. And that's the kind of quiet thing that will be spoken out loud at the ballot box for some voters. But here's the thing about that as politics, and it, it's going to sound a little crazy. Stories like that, issues like that, when when people on the right bring them up, the larger news consuming public is told that that's not true. That's not what's happening. Right. They're lied to. In other yeah. Words. Yeah. <laughs> and that and that version is the version that holds for a while. But again, I don't know that it holds for a while. And I don't know that what, what you just said, Christine, doesn't doesn't reinforce my point, which is that Gavin Newsom is advancing a policy that will be politically more advantageous for Republicans than for Democrats. Yes, he is I think advancing so, but... it out of conviction, I would say, or out of the hope that his extreme social progressivism will it both reflects the truth of life and the truth of what it means to be a Democrat. Well, he has no competencies we'll, as someone who governs. So yeah, maybe right. he's, this is. But his. we'll also advance his interests as a possible dark horse in 20, if Biden doesn't run or whatever. But it adds to the, uh, to the Republican or the conservative indictment of this runaway national mania for doing things to kids as regards their sexuality and their gender that cannot be undone. That at the very least, I think among even people 
who are extremely sympathetic to the the concept of extremely radical mind body duality concept of transgenderism but there's they're sympathetic to it but they don't think a 12 year old should have her breasts chopped off or be fed a lot of hormones and puberty blockers and things like that like they don't there's something grotesque about that that when you get to what will harden people into becoming activist on something and going to the polls to vote on it that's again better for the right than for the left i would say and one of the but to abe's point that's that depends on which phase of the narrative building we're in because he's absolutely right i mean remember the whips the, the, the border patrol officers supposedly whipping the migrants. It wasn't true. That was the narrative for a couple of weeks. And even though there was a counter uh, uh, narrative by conservative media who pointed out that it wasn't true, that had actual facts on their side, it didn't matter. It's the what same, a lot of people believed. The same applied to the teaching of uh, critical race theory in school. For the longest time, the story was not just Republicans pounce, but the Republicans lie. But it what they're work. telling you critical race theory is isn't what it is. But it but was it right out there for people. It took some time for the activists for it to trickle down into people's lives and then for, for them to react. It took way less time than I would have expected. Like the 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 move to install critical race theory at schools accelerated in 2020 and was made even more sort of dramatic by the pandemic and the fact that people were sort of making these policies over Zoom and all of that. And then we had an election in Virginia that was fundamentally a referendum on this. And the polls did not show, did not see the surge for Glenn Youngkin. Like the polls said that, that, uh, you know, that his rival was going to win, but Terry McAuliffe would win by nine points and, and, and he won by two. Right. Or I can't remember what the numbers were. Like it was crazy and it was that fast. And I think Soto Voce, whether it's, whether it's really public or not, that transgenderism is going to have this effect where it where it can, where there is a, where there is a systematic effort to impose it, obviously, Nothing's going to change that much in California, but when people bring it up and they bring it up in debates, we're about to, we're about to have dozens of debates. It's October. We're going to have Senate debates and we're going to have gubernatorial debates. But that, that if, that's yeah, a good, go but that, but that's a good example. So look at Wisconsin, which is not California. Uh, Barnes has now, uh, is, is in He's a the Democrat tie. Barnes. Yeah. Is the Democrat. Dem- and yeah. the reason is that when voters have been polled recently, they describe him as too extreme that that seems vague, but I think that phrase too extreme captures a lot of what you're saying, John, a lot of the sort of like, this guy is a little too far, uh, too far out for us. Like, this is not actually what most people feel too extreme could for the Democrats cost them the Senate. I mean, that, you right. know, that the Republicans could, could. I mean, and then Fetterman and Oz, the Fetterman, weird Fetterman Oz race also has narrowed. But Wisconsin is not California, and yet voters are finding some of the Democratic candidates too extreme. Well, but I mean, that's that's that makes Noah's point, which is the reason that they're finding Mandela Barnes too extreme, is that Ron Johnson went on the air on the attack on crime. 
from everything that we can tell, the case that's being made against Mandela Barnes is that he is soft on crime, that he has a record of being soft on crime, and that we are in the middle of a national crime surge. And every effort that people make to say that we are not in the middle of a national crime surge is belied not only by the lived experience of Americans who know that things feel different, but by the numbers that cannot that cannot be denied. I mean, we're not back in the 90s, but we are not in the 2010, we are not in the early 2010s either. We're in a new atmosphere in which crime is on the rise, not on the decline. And you can go on MSNBC and be Tiffany Cross and say, well, it's not, or, or Larry Krasner, amazingly enough, Larry Krasner, who was the progressive DA in Philadelphia, um, and this guy who is the sort of like the the poster child for progressive, you know, won't prosecute misdemeanors, you know, does, keeps wants to let people out, doesn't want to impose bail, all of that stuff. And he's the DA. Uh, he was interviewed on local TV and they said, what about the rise in crime? And he said, oh, crime is rising a lot faster in blue in red states than it is in blue states, which is a lie. I mean, it's an actual. Well, it, it, it's incredibly deliberately disingenuous because what you need to look at for crime data are the the places where where crime is highest, which are cities, and those in in almost every case have been run by Democratic right. politicians yeah. for decades, if not centuries. And so, when you look at that data, and that's actually where the crime data is more useful. Like, who's running? Who controls the police in those cities? A Democrat right. does. The mayor. Yeah, no, but I'm I'm just saying that the, the it's it, it's an astonishing thing. So he's he's doing the Frank Drebin in the Naked Gun, standing in front of the fireworks factory that has exploded, you know, waving his arms and saying, "Go away, nothing to see here. Go back to your homes." Like there's no, there are things you can deny the truth of, and maybe curriculum changes are 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 among them because who knows what curriculum is being changed. But whether you feel safer or less safe on the streets, that is not propaganda is not going to succeed in comforting you or changing your sense that something has gone wrong. I just had a thought on the uh, John, what you described as the sort of relative speed with which people grasped what was going on regarding CRT in the schools. I think that's an exception in the sense that it was tied to this pressing issue among parents, which was COVID in schools and, and, and the classroom. So, so they were more tuned in to a whole set of problems in that, in that realm um, than, than w- they would have normally been. Well, I think that's right. And that you had basically a new attitude of antagonism between parents and teachers and principals and school boards um, that it turned out parents sort of discovered that they were viewed hostily by the institutions that they were sending their kids to, that they they heard on Zooms things like, don't tell the parents that we're doing this, don't let parents know, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that that was kind of a new thing in, uh, you know, in, in this where, you know, I, people, people famously were always very um, kind of, gung-ho nationalistic patriotic about the school districts 
that they sent their kids to because they wanted to think that they were good, you know, because then they would justify the tax, the property taxes they were paying and stuff like that. Like that, that was a classic thing. It was like how people hate Congress, but love their congressmen. They were always very, you know, it was like a kind of conspiracy property owner conspiracy to say the schools in our district are good because you don't want to say they're bad because then your property values will decrease. But then this became inarguable that there was this kind of ideological framework that was being imposed consciously, deliberately, and incredibly vulgarly on their children. And, you know, obviously it's a minority of parents who become activists in this case, but they they really influenced people in a way that education issues have not influenced people in decades. Um, and so, and I think that's also true of stuff like transgenderism that as long as you were talking in the case of say, uh, you know, the advance of gay rights and stuff like that, as long as it was, look, it's no skin off your nose if these guys want to get married or these women want to get married. In fact, it'll be better for everybody. It's more orderly, more organized. That what, what do you can? They love each other and it's fine, right? This is now deliberate surgical alteration of underage kids. Uh, and there is an effort to advance this idea against the wishes or the fee or the ho- or you know, or the parents who know them best and who are who's you know who to whom god has entrusted <laughs> these children with their upbringing and that is a very i think that's a that's a very hard that's a very big leap that's a very big cognitive leap and it's very inter- very easy for people to go whoa 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 what are you talking about well it's also it's also very difficult for people to be told by democratic political leaders at at the highest levels that not that having that feeling which i think is completely legitimate is intolerant it's transphobic it makes you a bad person to even question that and that combined with what when it was the trump administration i remember many media outlets using the word gaslighting i remember the the constant lists of here are lies here are lies we know this isn't true that is that kind of accounting doesn't happen now understandably because you know they're the media doesn't like to do that when a Democrat's in office, but there have been so many blatant lies. Look, if you live in in Wisconsin or even anywhere near Milwaukee, do you know what you remember? You remember a guy getting in a truck and driving through a Christmas parade and murdering grandmas and children like that's what you remember. And so when someone says, you know, crime really isn't that big a deal and, you know, we should just eliminate cash bail. Then you read what's going on in New York, which did eliminate cash bail. These, this is gaslighting of the kind that Trump was, I think, correctly and often accused of doing. But now it doesn't count. Our border isn't secure. No, our border is secure. People, you know, the vice president says on a national news show, these are not people who seriously think that lies will be challenged, and they are not on by the media that supports them. They are challenged by the conservative media, which is which is good. But I, what what voters do, I think, at this point, is either tune it all out or fasten on the issue and and they'll vote on that but i the idea that in wisconsin crime shouldn't be an issue is 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 really condescending to people who who endured this kind of mass killing event and and the media immediately memory holded of course um because the assailant wasn't someone who was politically correct enough to discuss um but that that they remember people who live in, in that area remember that event so mark melman 
2020, wrote a piece in The Hill about likely voter screens. Mark Mellon was a Democratic pollster, very honest guy, very impressive person. And he said likely voter screens are bad. It's always in September, people start going to likely voter screens and they're bad because they assume an electorate that doesn't exist. They always assume an electorate that doesn't exist uh, because they basically capture 80% of people if you look at data, between 65 and 80% of people who say that they are sure to vote, vote, which means that 30 to 35% of people, 20 to 35% of people who say they're sure to vote don't vote, which means that the likely voter in those number, you know, is off. Like people are saying they're going to vote and then you take their information and they're not going to vote. So, and that unlikely voters do vote. So unlikely voters, you call them unlikely voters, so you're not counting them, but 10 to 12% or something like that of the of the electorate will be unlikely voters or people that you either haven't captured or say they're not going to vote or say they're unenthusiastic when you talk to them. And so this whole thing is a, is a sham. I bring this up only to say that um, when when we're talking about things that look static, like the polling isn't changing very much. You know, it's like a little bit here, a little bit there. Everything that we're being told about the electorate, which is only amplified by the fact that the pollsters seem to be measuring a lot of the same things, is all dependent upon these numbers that we get in which these polls that often don't even involve likely voters, in which vastly larger numbers of people say that they're going to turn out to the polls than in fact will turn out to the polls. And that's why enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm matters because these people theoretically intend to vote, but then only half to two thirds of them do. And therefore, what is it that makes the difference between the people who intend to vote but don't and the people who intend to vote and then do is that their buttons are being pushed, right? And that it becomes re either, either, you know, most of them are going to vote because they're doing it as their civic duty, but their buttons are being pushed. So this is my question is, do the issue sets that we're talking about, do they push, Noah's been very silent here, so I want to, do they push people's buttons or is it the other guy that pushes people's buttons? That is it is it i'm voting because these guys are crazy on abortion or i'm voting because these guys are crazy on crime and i gotta vote for the other guy because these people are scaring me senseless if i knew the answer to that i'd be one of the most effective ad makers i would have my own consultancy uh quite a few con ongoing contracts with members of congress i don't know the answer to that um you know, negative ads uh are a staple because they work and we have a, a, an environment typified by negative partisanship, which suggests that negativity is the driving force behind uh, all politics. It is, you know, it is it is the by far the strongest force in our national political dynamic right now. So do I, you know, is chicken egg situation? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but quite clearly a base mobilizing election, which is what the Democrats view this as, is going to be one that's dominated by negativity and to the extent that republicans fuel that by just being republicans uh you know that that certainly plays into their advantage but both sides do it so yeah i mean <laughs> negativity works
Okay, this is the point if we were on a cable news show, we can actually all see each other's faces. This is when Abe and John and I start screaming at Noah about how terrible he is and just he's so wrong and how stupid. Okay. <laughs> well, I did a terrible pundit thing no. there being like, well, I don't actually <laughs> know what's going to really... work. And plus, I'm having a very time hard time focusing uh, actually on the election given events abroad. Okay, I must confess. We're going to get to we're going to get to events uh, abroad in a minute. But here's but here's the thing. What you just said is very interesting. What you said about negativity. Because when negative advertising became really, really hot in the 1980s, and it was the great innovation, the modern form of negative advertising, which has always existed, right? I mean, it's, but was pioneered by, by, the, by the legendarily problematic Lee Atwater, late Lee Atwater. The idea was that negative advertising had the effect of depressing turnout, that was the notion that if you did really effective negative advertising, you would depress turnout among the people you didn't want to come out to the polls to vote. They would stay home and then your people would vote in whoever it was. So Republicans ran ads to depress Democrats, not to rally Republicans, but to depress Democrat, it was more important to depress the Democratic vote than it was to rally the Republican vote. We seem to have a two generations later, we seem to have a shift in which negative ads are directed at your own side to make them furious with the other guy. And in other words, like the classic thing was Arthur Finkelstein, the, the, the again, legendarily problematic guy from New York who invented ad that said, buddy, you're a liberal. You know, liberal became a bad word. That was because people who were nominal Democratic voters were getting more and more conservative. And if he could tag a Democratic candidate like Buddy McKay, who was running for either governor or senator of Florida, I can't remember. Then Democratic voters who were not liberals but were still in the Democratic camp would just, they weren't going to go and vote for whoever Buddy McKay was running against, but they would just stay home. It's like, I'm not voting for that liberal guy. Like, that's not the guy I want. But that is not where we are now. That's what's interesting is that negativity is a driver of, to, of voters. It actually succeeds in driving voters, and that's that's a twist. I don't know what to make of it. I don't understand the nature of it. It's got something to do with the ids that have been released over the. Well, last but I think it's years. it's also an acknowledgement that um, the divide is implicit, is here to stay. So they're working with with the built-in divide. It's it's not about persuading. It's about getting people on your own side to admit they're on your side. So Noah, actually, I'm going to read an ad and then, but I want to talk about this thing where where we seem to have a kind of truce, ideological truce, except in the extreme camps among intellectuals, on the most important issues abroad, meaning meaning Ukraine. But let me first talk to you about our our advertiser today, Policy Genius. Look, we all hope you don't. We no one wants to talk about life insurance. We hope we never need life insurance, but mortgage payments, childcare, and other expenses don't disappear when you're gone. 
and life insurance you get to your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. So since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now's the time to buy, and Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. It was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $17 per month for $500,000 of coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. There are no added fees. Your personal info remains private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Okay, so Noah, you are uh, finding it hard to concentrate on the election because you are mostly concerned with Ukraine. And here's the thing about Ukraine. Where, where Where are the policy distinctions between Biden administration and Republicans on the Hill that are of any serious meaning? Well, I say there aren't many. I'm on the margin. That's a, that's an interesting qualifier, but it's one that may okay. not hold in 2023. In the, among I'm not the talking about 2023. Well, I'm in 2023, we now. have a Republican majority, and then well, we have a, and we have a majority leader who's promised to restore uh, MTG to committee posts. Maybe you know, maybe even that's Marjorie Taylor of Greene. <laughs> yeah, Matt Gates. It's very openly uh, said, you know, his, his views and those who share his views is that dollar one should not be going to Ukraine. Every single ounce of uh, support that we provide for the Ukrainians is is uh, a waste and uh, takes is in the zero sum game somehow takes something away from more deserving Americans. So, yes, I mean, as much as this is a rhetorical position, I don't think they have thought this through. They do. Uh, they are writing a lot of rhetorical checks around the notion that they would defund this enterprise in the majority. Now, did they have the forces to do that? Probably not. But we have a, a very weak-willed uh, Republican majority and a very passionate, uh, albeit small, uh, group of individuals who are beholden to this sect of Republicans who would like to light this effort on fire to support Ukrainian independence. And they will wage an effort to do that. They will be supported by the commanding heights of the, of the Republican media infrastructure, the right-wing media infrastructure, and they may buckle under the pressure. Um, it's certainly not a majority position. The majority position in this country is to support Ukrainian sovereignty materially. Um, but among the most activist uh, faction within the Republican right, the insurgent Republican right, that is not the case. Well, it may not be the case among them, but we really don't have any evidence that this is a position that is shared by the majority of Republican uh, elected officials. Um, it may yet be, which is to say, and this is why we, we should the get famous to the rule. Okay, this is why we should get but, to the battlefield developments. Okay, um, but before because... we get to the battle, just politically, since you brought up the politics and the politics, so of the, the thing change. that the thing that Republicans want is a guarantee from Kevin McCarthy or whoever will follow him 
of what was called the re-implementation of what was called the Hastert rule. The Hastert rule says nothing will be brought to the floor to vote unless a majority of the members of the Republican caucus support it. Um, and therefore, you know, you can presume the since the Republican caucus will make up if they be, end up, ta- which they probably will, taking the House, will make up about, you know, 52 or 53 percent of the members uh, in the ma- majority, because it's not going to be that it's not going to be that heavy a majority. It'll be somewhere in the 230s. Democrats will be in the 190s. Presumably, presumably the Democrats will vote with what the Biden administration wants. So they will be there and, uh, with those votes. And and the Republicans will you know be able to go with just a simple majority of their voters and have with you know simple majority of their caucus. And then you'd have 300 votes for any bill on you know on 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 Ukraine. Um, if we presume that i think that that is not that much of an issue and i think we would have in the senate not that the senate controls the house in any way shape or form but you'll have very conservative members of the senate who are very hawkish and very pro-ukraine right you've got tom cotton you've got lindsey Graham, you've got people who are aligned with the trumpian wing in every other way but believe in and you know believe in this policy so i don't know i'm not sure i I and that's as it stands today that is the state of play today on it drawing a straight line projection into when republicans have the majority and republican and ukrainians keep winning and russians keep losing that's where the state of play is now and we can that would persist if nothing else changed but everything's changing on an hourly basis um we had not spoken since Moscow put on this, uh, you know, spectacle of national pageantry, welcoming in these territories into the Russian Federation outright, these four Ukrainian territories that held a, a false referendum on independence and a free unfair referendum on independence, and we're welcome into the Russian Russian Federation. And the narrative shift now is that and no, Moscow is no longer liberating these people from occupation; they are themselves invaded uh, with a pen stroke casting themselves no longer as a strong party liberating beset neighbors, but a weak party that is under attack. Uh, and we've seen a lot of battlefield fluidity. Uh, the city of Lyman collapsed on, on Friday. Lima, rather, collapsed on Friday. And then this this afternoon, unconfirmed reports, but enough of them to suggest that it's very real, uh, is that a front in Kyrgyzstan, the Kyrgyzstan front, which is in the south of the country, remember, Liman is in the north, and that and around uh, uh, Kharkiv, and that collapsed last week, two weeks ago. And now Kyrgyzstan's showing, showing some softness, and they're driving down this this river uh, that separates, uh, you know, driving down this river that separates down to the to the coast where the Crimean Peninsula begins, and where the city Keep of Kyrgyzstan. Keep saying nay. Is. I think you need to. I'm sorry, no. Oh, the Ukrainians. Ukrainians are on the march. The players are here. Okay. Sure. Ukrainians are advancing on Liman, and they advanced on Izium. They ca- captured these two cities. Now they're advancing on cities around Kyrgyzstan, and they're just a few kilometers outside the suburbs of Kyrgyzstan proper. Anyway, these fronts are collapsing on themselves and they show no signs of stopping. And I've been wondering why we haven't seen surrenders. Remember I was saying, well, they're surrounding Izium. There's going to be a big surrender. No surrender. The surrounding Liman, there's many thousands of troops there. It's going to be a big surrender. No surrender. Uh, and we're seeing subsequent images of lots of dead Russians on the battlefield. Really gruesome images. And some uh, early reports, unconfirmed reports again, but this is the stuff that I read on a fairly regular basis of Ukrainian soldiers who are, becoming sick over the images that they are witnessing they are wading through 
severed limbs and bodies that are still alive and gushing blood. It's, it's a car, it's a carnal, charnel house in, in Ukraine right now. Um, but, you know, Russia's pulling back. Their, flu, their front is melting away and they've incorporated these territories. They're under attack. They're losing territory. And Russian people, you know, Ramzan Kadyrov, who's the head of Chechnya, is now saying we need to use tactical nuclear weapons. Um, it's a very real live threat. And let's say the least escalatory thing they could possibly do with a tactical nuclear weapon, they do. They detonate a low yield weapon in the stratosphere. No radioactive fallout falls down. You don't even have much of an experience with an electromagnetic pulse. It's just a demonstrative display. No casualties, no nothing. Uh, the, there's very little we could do in that event to, to not as continued this escalatory posture that we've maintained. It would be an, un, an unrealized, and a panic that's hard to describe. The cities would empty. Every supermarket in the West would be empty within hours. The, the anti-war voices who have so far been quieted by battlefield successes would have n new relevance and very loud, loud microphones. So where uh, does this, but, but the, I, I, so all of this, all of this makes me go back to the important question that, that Noah, you were asking since day one, where's the off ramp for Putin? What, what now does the international community do to, well, this is mean, it. if he's cornered, if he's cornered, he's going to do something. And perhaps. then the other thing is like, well, we have to respond and we do, we, there's no way we couldn't respond. And they're like, well, we can't respond unconventionally. And I agree. We can't respond unconventionally. We can respond conventionally. We can neutralize whatever the asset was that launched that thing. We could go farther than that. We could blockade Moscow, but Russia has one way to achieve strategic parity with the West. And that is strategic nuclear exchange, not tactical. Strategic okay. nuclear exchange. There's no other way for it to maintain strategic parity. It can't respond in any other way. Okay. The problem that you, the problem with this analysis, which I, I have no difficulty with, because as a scenario, it's 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 one of them or two of them or three of them, is that you're going to eleven, and what we have is, is a is a real world situation. Granted, very dangerous because we're talking about a country with nuclear weapons, but the real world situation is that they're losing this war. They are losing this war and they are, they are doing weird, bizarre, desperate. They are, but I, like, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I don't want, I want you to finish your thought, but I think we might risk mirroring there because uh, they're, they, they understand they're losing as much as we understand they're, they're losing. And they did this test. If we are to believe what NATO is telling us, they did this test of resolve by destroying their own infrastructure, and we did nothing. We did nothing in meaning, response. Meaning the meaning the Nord Stream pipeline. Right. I mean, this is this is a but resolve. How are we display. supposed to? This this That's is just. One I'm thing telling you, what the view understand. from Moscow. I feel like is. I know, but I don't. I don't understand this thing because you said this the other day, and I don't understand. If they sabotage their own pipeline, how are we supposed to respond to that? Well, first of all, I we don't would say understand you sabotage what, what is the pipeline. We've what? named no names. Okay, you're saying that we are implicitly learning, or it is the implicit statement of the West, if not explicit, that they have sabotaged their own pipeline. What do you mean we're supposed to respond? Respond they, it's at like, least it's by like if they having the their stomach to say who did it. Okay, but okay, but they what? Okay, I don't get that. Uh, that doesn't really follow from what you're saying. You're you just said. They did this thing and they they did this thing and we haven't responded. 
I, I don't know what the response is because it's not, it's an act. They're, they're cutting off their nose. That's exactly right. No, face. here's okay. Because let's go, let's, we have to think of pre-modern here. The response is not, well, we're going to have a very serious investigation and we're going to find out who did this. That is not how these people think. Okay. But what they we don't think in like the pre-modern the 20th, context, pre-modern context. Yes. But you likened this the other day to the black knight in Monty Python. Right. So if the Black Knight is standing in front of you and your his arms are getting lopped yeah. off and everything, the Black Knight isn't as scary. But what, every it, moment what it goes now? What did Graham saying, Chapman do? He didn't. He didn't leave him his food. last leg. No, he just kept. Okay, but he didn't let him. Walk, he didn't let him stomp away with his last leg. That leg's got to go but, too. But I don't. I'm not following this argument because you're saying they're getting more and more dangerous the more that they lose. In other words, like the scenarios that you're positing are, are the Russia at its most dangerous, right? It'll, it will use nuclear weapons because that's all it has left in its arsenal. And, and the game would be to get us to not respond. And I think that's the most likely scenario is that we do. Okay. But that, but, but I'm sorry, like the response question already is taking things into a, a whole different realm because they don't know how we would respond. We don't know how we would respond. And that's one of the reasons that they're not going to, in my estimation, that they're not going to do it. I have to tell you because they just did this thing that was, I think we can do something. And the West is so weak and Biden pulled out of Afghanistan and all this that they're not going to respond and we're just going to swallow up Ukraine. And guess what just happened to them? They have lost tens of thousands of men. They have been humiliated time and again. They are losing to this, you know, pissant, this country they thought was a pissant country that isn't really a country. And I don't know that that makes you feel stronger or makes you say, you know, okay, I've got the dragon fire, you know, in the basement. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to blow up our, I'm going to blow up the ships in the harbor. Like I, our I listeners, know, I know, John, I John is you... going to be watching house of dragons in about 20 minutes. Yeah. So that, that was <laughs> just a little, that preview. was my, yes, that was my game of Thrones. <laughs> that was my, and yeah, game of Thrones. There is an inverse anyway. proportionality to the, you know, bluster that we're seeing from, from the Kremlin and also in the streets of Moscow, you know, I don't know how you watched that ceremony the other day without having a real sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach as you're watching a yeah. nation go suicidally insane. They may have the resolve to do this. I don't know how they get out of this trap that they're in without doing this. I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm more on Noah's side on this one. Um, but one thing I do remain confused about. I'm not on any side. I, yeah. I, I'm completely baffled, to be honest. I'm not taking a side. I'm just well, what I'm baffled I, about, what, I, what the, the the detail here that I am baffled about, and maybe this explains some of why you're baffled, is I, I still don't understand why Russia would blow up its own pipelines. And I, to be totally honest, when I saw why the did news, they burn, why did why did they engage in scorched earth? Because it's someone else's scorched earth. No, it, it's not there. It's not Russia. This is Russia. They burned everything all the way to Moscow. To Moscow, to to Moscow. Yes, because that was the when? fortress. But yeah, yeah, that was the whole point. It's just well, you're talking is, about. You, wait, you're talking you about can't that, have it because you, Napoleon if we can't have it. You it. can't have it either. Listen to every Putin speech. This world does not want Russia in it, so you will not have a world without Russia in it. They might actually mean it. I, oh, I, I, Putin I, might mean I, that. I, I don't, guys. Just, just let me Go put ahead. my my very unpopular two cents in here regarding the pipelines. When I first saw the story. I'll tell you what I thought. 
I thought, yeah. oh, we did it. Good. <laughs> that is what I thought. By the way, and then I started seeing I all this the stuff. Spoken like it. a true American, yes. Abe. I See, just have I to thought it. the Ukrainians did it, and I was like, man, they are really good. Like yeah. that. That is some. That is some, some high quality divers, sabotage yeah. from a little country that was, you know, like barely, you know, barely a player on the world stage until eight years ago when it unwillingly became a player on the world stage. Right. So, but by the way, when they scorched the earth leading up to Moscow, that was because they were being invaded by France and France was controlling. So they burned, that's a classic scorched earth strategy. There's no, the Ukrainians aren't going in. You're thinking about. I don't know what they're scorching. Terms. This is this is a romantic exercise. This whole escapade is a Pushkin novel. I don't know how else you Pushkin see it didn't write for, novels. Well, Pushkin sorry. didn't write novels, so I would. I mean, okay. I he wrote a verse novel, but uh, but I, I, okay, the one novel. Just you, you understand what like I'm a saying. This is a romantic exercise, and romantic exercises are in are self destructive. I would venture most of them. In the okay. classic sense of uh, a Rousseauian vision of romanticism. No, I, I look, I, I what I'm saying is that um, countries get weaker when they lose things, not stronger, and they get more. Putin is a human being, crazy though he might be or not. And like the thing you do under these circumstances when things don't work is that you start second guessing yourself because, or you don't, you can't because then you'll look weak, but how can you not? And you thought you understood how the world was going to respond to you when you invaded Ukraine. And it turned out that you were 180 degrees wrong about how the world was going to respond. And now you're like, holy crap. You know, but you're but you're I, assuming okay. that that you're assuming and, and I have to I, I'm on okay. uh, I, I I'm very sympathetic to what Noah's arguing here. You're assuming that Putin's behaving like a rational strategic actor. No. When I think Noah's right. He could be sick. He has no immediate obvious successor whom he has groomed to take power that we know of. Maybe he's got nothing left to lose. Just, just and in to that clarify, scenario, I, he, you know, I'm sorry, Christine, no, I don't ahead. mean to interrupt, but it would be an entirely rational act to escalate to deescalate in this way wouldn't be a rush okay but here's my point if you really believe this then you are closer to marjorie taylor green and matt gates than you are to tom cotton and lindsey graham well i mean in other words like the logic is i don't think i think that this war has to be prosecuted as thoroughly as possible now but why in the event in the event that we were to and in the event that there was to be attacked but look i think there's an in ineluctable logic here, we can't simply get off this train. Even if these escalatory steps occurred, I think it's incumbent on us to respond uh, in precise ways, but in kinetic ways. Now, I know that's very, very dangerous, but I don't see any other way out of it. That's why it's very terrifying. Okay. I, I think this, you know, th there's an inertia that will happen here that's some kind of automatic. What do you mean by inertia? Uh, just the escalatory response. Uh, you know, response back and then Putin threatens a strategic nuclear response. And then, you know, we get to the everybody freak out period. But I think we get to that. I mean, we are going to get to that point. And to get to that point before the breaks, I don't see the breaks coming on before we get to to that stage of. But the your chart. argument kind of speaks. I, I mean, I'm not criticizing it because this is a fiendishly difficult situation. 
your argument kind of speaks to the idea that maybe there should be a little bit of a pause because according to your logic, the better that the Ukrainians do and the more, you know, efficiently that they prosecute this war, yeah, the more dangerous Putin becomes. And so therefore the question would be, following i'm listening to you and i'm saying maybe we should be proposing a ceasefire this well because week. in the event that there was an actual detonation there would be such a panic like i said the cities would empty out the supermarkets would be under siege it would be chaos um that there will be a, a peace overtures and it's probably smart that there would be but that doesn't mean when? that the flow of weapons stops when yeah you mean before or after after probably should be before no i mean then, after. No, peace overture that, after that, you believe uh, yeah, that no this is how you come to the table no, but if you believe Ultimatum. that, then we have to stop. The, then we have to stop the war now at at any cost. The Not worst cost. possible thing that could happen here is for Putin to use a nuclear weapon. Let's. I mean, we need to sort of like. I mean, honestly, if we're going to play scenario games here, we have lived now seventy-seven years without a further use of a nuclear weapon, and we are the only country that ever used a nuclear weapon. And our policy ever since has been and should be that nobody can ever again use a nuclear weapon. Though implicitly, I guess, we get to, you know, because we're the country that is setting the policy, whatever. Russia breaks that almost 80-year, uh, you know, sort of like red line on the planet Earth and we are in a new reality that we cannot possibly stomach. So I'm saying if you're looking down the road at an eventual probable or even 25% possible use of a nuclear weapon, then I don't think the logic of your position is that we need to help Ukraine batter Russia continually oh, from yeah, now until... Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, I think we do. Uh, Abe, articulate the alternative. Well, the alternative is we we all live in a world in which the the, the craziest person with the worst weapon gets to do whatever he wants with impunity. No, no. But I mean, right now. I'm saying we could enter into talks. That's what I'm I'm just saying, like, I'm just thinking through what you're saying, because you're saying if we prosecute this with the world for people with the world's worst weapons going on then he'll use one what's better he might but it would be his choice and it would be incumbent on us to respond okay but i, I okay did uh, abe you're nodding which people can't see so yeah yeah follow I, mean, I, 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 I i agree me. i mean it's obviously this is this respond. is it's grim cold war stuff but yep. i mean I, I i don't know how else you know we were not, I don't, not to be corny about war. it, but I, but I, I'm not. I'm trying to imagine sort of like what Reagan would 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 do. We were never anywhere near this point in the Cold War. All talk. I mean, we were theoretically when there was talk that they were, you know, we were going to put medium range missiles in Europe to counter Russian Soviet medium range missiles in Europe. All this. We were never in a situation in which there was an ongoing war in which there was now a discussion of the use of a nuclear weapon. That has never happened. That has not had. This is new. There's nothing. No, but this is how it, this is how it goes when the Soviets pour through the fold of gap 
and it, it's conventional all the way up until the yeah. moment it's not like that's old yeah but the games. soviets didn't pour through the phone no but this these were the war we, games, so it's we not, had it's two not million men we had we had two million people in um, u.s uniform you know in until the cold war ended precisely to say you ain't going through the Fulda gap that you are not coming into your you were there is not you are stop right now and we stopped ourselves constantly during the cold war we de-escalated constantly we would not allow ourselves to escalate in hungary or in prague or in with solidarity or you know we even our support for the uh, you know, for anti-communist rebels in Angola and Nicaragua, and particularly in Afghanistan, was furtive and complicated and very small bore and all of that because we did not want to get to the point that you are saying we are at now. Now, my view is different, which is I think a country that is losing is losing, not winning, and that it makes that country like and its leaders incompetent and weird and and not crazy but like he won't know what to do he doesn't know what to do and that that's the thing to take advantage of but if you think that we're inevitably again i'm just going to say this if you think that we're going inevitably to a point at which russia can use a nuclear weapon we have to forestall that because i think it's it's i i want to state for the record that i still think this is less likely than more likely at this stage, although it's becoming okay. more and more likely, but it remains on balance unlikely. Nevertheless, um, yeah, I, I, I hopefully we would have some build up to this that it wouldn't just take a surprise. Surprise, we would see assets moving around, we would see the twelfth directorate assets moving around, and we've started to begin to see things like that. But it's also autumn, and they do exercises in autumn, so we don't want to put too much emphasis on it. Nevertheless, uh, that kind of intelligence would be presumably, I would hope. Uh, not declassified, but leaked to the proper sources so that it would come out on its own. And we hopefully it would overtake whatever the culture war of the day is. We'd actually start talking about this sort of thing. Um, but I would hope we would have a, a, at least a, a few days of forewarning about something looking very, very serious so we could have this kind of conversation. Um, because like, you know, we have all, just by virtue of this conversation and how raw it is and how uh, you know, we're just beginning to approach these issues. They're not fully thought out. Nobody's thought about this stuff in the last 30 years. We need to have a national conversation about nuclear deterrence and strategic nuclear exchanges, which are what we're going to be talking about. I think I'm but we're not next, talking about strategic nuclear. You're not talking about the strategic. Mm. I mean, I, that, am, I know. Terms... I think I think Russia's Russia would have to menace a strategic response because that's the only way it can achieve parity with the okay. West. But th- these terms, in nuclear terms, had very specific meanings. A strategic. And I mean them specifically. Yeah, but that's that's counter value. That's counter force. a bilateral. Yeah. That's a bilateral America versus the Soviet Russia thing is strategic. Tactical is what will be happening here. This will be a this will even if it's not on the battlefield, it will be part of a battle, an ongoing war that is going on now. Yes, not, and, what, and what I'm saying is if okay. you even conventionally respond to that, Russia will have to say, well, we'll have to attack your value targets or your your silos, because that's the only response they have that that approaches parity with the West. Okay, you're just talking me into the idea that we're we're on the we're on the verge of making a disastrous world destroying mistake, and we shouldn't be involved in this. When we need to pull back, 
I mean, the better your argument is in my hearing, the more frightening the possibilities are and the need to forestall them. Well, that's well, that's why we need to have this conversation now, because I'm very afraid that that's the reaction that we'll have when we start to articulate these issues in the way that I'm articulating them. When you start to actually begin to think through it, it becomes unthinkable real fast. And I think that's a dangerous prospect because I don't believe you can stop prosecuting this war. I don't believe that we can usher in a precedent in which all you need to do in order to subsume a people into slavery and misery and death and torture is threaten nuclear weapons, pour across the border. And as long as you're nuclear armed, you can do what you want. That's a recipe for but a globe he didn't full do of that. Weapons. But he didn't do that. You're doing that. You're not doing it. You're doing you. You are. No, you I are. Am. You are proposing. No, but what I mean is he he staged a conventional attack, a conventional non-nuclear attack on a neighboring country with the effort of destroying and subsuming it and has, I mean, he hasn't lost it yet, but I mean, it's gone as disastrously as such a war could go uh, for a country okay, that's- but Russian media sport. is yeah, showing okay. images of mushroom clouds right now. Like the, it, 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 he hasn't done it yet, but but there's been plenty of signaling that has been not at all subtle. So it's, again, intended to, I think- they you know, talk themselves into this eschatological response to the adversity right. that they face because of their own actions. And it'd be foolish of us to ignore it. They, they might not, mean it. I mean, I don't know if everybody just got through watching. I agree. You're the Holocaust documentary, you're, you're, the, the, you know, the, the latest Holocaust documentary on PBS. And it's all that, you know, it's interesting to see all these Americans who rationalize themselves out of what they're reading in the newspaper, that, that a country, an entire people had gone suicidally insane and wanted to take the world with them in a mass conflagration. And we couldn't understand, we couldn't rationalize it. We couldn't think that that's possible. So we had to rationalize ourselves out of it. And we were just watching the same thing happen to us again. Well, we don't know. We really don't know this time uh, for whom else this is a romantic endeavor. We know it is for, for Putin. I think that's that's right. Um, is it for his immediate circle? And is it for the circle after that? And so on and so on. I mean, that, you know, that's the best hope. Again, we don't know. We But, but that that's the best hope. The, the, the Washington says it's communicated privately with Moscow in detail about what our response would be to uh, right. an, an escalation of the type we're talking about here. Um, does that scare enough of the right people around Putin? That that would be the best scenario. I mean, I just think that this is a this is a very important conversation uh, because uh, it, you you are compelled under these circumstances to confront your priors. I mean, any honest reckoning with an, an incredibly complicated situation requires intellectually honest people to confront and ask whether the things that they believed coming in and that they that they you know are are still hold once you see. And what's interesting to me, Noah, and I don't really. And all you guys and I is that um, we are taking a remarkable series of events that demonstrate um, this uh, extraordinary resistance to this effort to subsume a country and this incredible series of military successes in which we are increasingly going to learn. And you should go read Todd Lindbergh's piece and commentary about this that we published a couple of months ago 
um, that 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 sort of relates this that how much how much credit we get behind the scenes starting in the Obama administration through the Trump administration and into the Biden administration for the training and the things that we were teaching the Ukrainians to do and how to handle themselves once once this war started it turns out that there was a lot going on that we didn't know about and all of that and that this is an amazingly positive story about the the world order and on the other hand maybe it's not maybe you know maybe we should have just let him do it because if this leads to if this leads to a war in which nuclear weapons are involved well, it, then, it, then it would have gotten there anyway, because the, the objective of this whole thing wasn't to take Ukraine. It was to break the NATO alliance. It was to, you know, convince okay. Paris and Berlin and New York and London right. would, you know, is it worth going to war for tiny Estonia? Uh, and, you know, the assumption here was nobody would want to die for Danzig. But it turns out right. there was a little bit more resolve there. Well, there's there's more resolve because no one's died for Danzig. Right. The Ukrainians are doing this on their own and we're just, we're giving them equipment and some, you know, probably some behind the scenes support and stuff like that. But nobody has asked us to sacrifice hardly anything. I mean, except money, you know, and I understand for Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, that's terrible because that money should be spent on on finding, you know, finding phony voters and stuff like that. But I'm just saying, like, you know, the the it's interesting that you you have gone to a place where you cannot actually celebrate this Ukrainian triumph because it has escalated in your own head. It's escalated into this potentially, you know, again, like unprecedented. We're in it. We're we're in an unprecedented moment. No, no military conflict since 1945 has involved a country that had nuclear weapons that it was thinking of using in 77 years. What countries do we know have nuclear weapons, right? We know European countries have, China has a nuclear weapon, North Korea now has nuclear weapons, Israel has a nuclear weapon, um, India. Israel, huh? India, Pakistan, India, India Pakistan, Pakistan, South Africa, maybe they, they gave up their arsenal. Okay, they <laughs> they're, they're they're so yeah, we know. Okay, Ukraine and South Africa, and then so the only Argentina country, and Brazil gave up their programs, but right, only because right. their environments yeah. became and Libya. dramatic regime change right. or environment change. Right. So only Israel has been involved in actual, you know, like conventional wars in the time that it had a nuclear weapon. And of course it never even came up with not, that wasn't, it's there as a pocket really to deal with the eventual Iranian situation, which we even haven't even gotten to here and the mania that they're still apparently theoretically negotiating or whatever. But I'm just saying like, this is just something entirely new. And therefore, you know, yes, it, you need to have a conversation to say, okay, look, if they do it, what are we going to do in response? I agree. You it know, that was good Herman to just, Kahn. To, you know, puts at least put some perspective into it because I do fear that if this just all of a sudden there's movement of assets or God forbid, there's, you know, blinding white light, no one's prepared for it, then there'll be a mass panic. 
Oh, don't worry, because we have a guy. We have a guy in the Oval Office who is just (laughs) sharp as a tack. And he is like able to zero in like a laser. beam. he is on it. That midnight phone call comes in. He is awake. Yeah, he is on it. You know, he was out there saying, Mikhail Gorbachev, are you here? You know, I think he's supposed to be here, but he's not here. Whatever. I mean, I mean, I just I don't know why you're concerned, because, you know, if you have a if you have a world in deep crisis with, you know, exit with literal existential, you know, threat of of unprecedented proportions, you want an 80 year old moron who's half senile in the Oval foreign office. policy, even when he wasn't that old for his entire yeah. career as foreign policy in- instincts right. have yeah. been I mean, terrible. If instinct is capitulation. Yeah, he was a moron. He was a moron before he became a drooling cabbage. So it's really great because, you know, maybe if he really solidifies himself, raw, he can just go back to being a moron. <laughs> Even though Abbage. having said all that, the Biden administration has done very well in this context. But, uh, you know, if except, except, the ground for, except to the extent that it invited it by by being incredibly by pulling weak, out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Yes. Well, that yes, that was yes, that was bad. Anyway, and, and being and being weak with Putin, on, yeah. but in, in advance of this, and but, that but, too, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we can go into that. So, look, Noah, you wanted to talk about this, and we really talked about it. We this talked is, about it way. This is a yeah. uh, okay. So, yeah, just, yeah, I, I, I'll be more careful what I wish for. <laughs> so will our <laughs> listeners who are expecting traditional yes. after dark <laughs> chatter. I'm just, you know, we'll yes, yes. Well, you know, Noah did have us did have wine. That's right. And yet, uh, yes. Okay. Well, this crushing morosity must stand until uh, until tomorrow. So for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Pogoritz. Keep the candle burning.